we're very excited to be in collaboration with the Vosters in their mission to reach college students. And um, I, I got to say, I just believe that is such a vital ministry nowadays because college is such a, a key turning point for many people. Uh, college students are asking the key questions about life and faith, uh, questions like we've been asking in this series. So if you're just joining us, uh, we began a short series last week called Is Christmas Unbelievable, based on the book by Rebecca McLaughlin. Now, again, this is not your typical Christmas series. It's a series about apologetics, about evidence for the faith and defending the faith. And uh, Pastor Dave kicked off the series last week with the question, is Jesus even a real person? Which I got to tell you, I think is, is a pertinent question around Christmas time, right? Uh, the New Testament Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record the details of his life. And so as we ask the question, how can we know about his life? We have to look at those documents. But here's the challenge. They are ancient documents. And so the natural second question after we talk about is Jesus a real person is can we take the gospel accounts, the accounts of his life, can we take them seriously? That's the topic for today, for week two. Now, that question made me think about another debate that I think rages around Christmas time, and that's the debate about Christmas trees. Do you get a real one or do you get a fake one? Maybe this is a conversation in your house. Uh, I've had both growing up. I, uh, I always got a real tree. Uh, but in adulthood, we've decided that we just we go with the fake tree because you know what? I just don't want to deal with the mess. That's just the reality. Uh, now, there's pros and cons to both, but if you get a real tree, you might say it's more real. You know, the tree is greener, it smells better, it's way more fun because you get to chop it down, perhaps. I've seen pictures of some of you doing that on social media. Um, if you have a fake tree, you might argue, well, it's less hassle, it's less of a fire hazard, and best of all, you can customize it, you can make it white, you can put frosting on it, you can do, you know, the, the lights already come on it, you know, that type of stuff. So who out there gets a real tree? All right? Who out there gets a fake tree? All right, all right. It, about even, just like the first service. So we're split, which is great. It's a great Christmas debate. Right now, the real tree people are judging the fake tree people. <laughs> now you're saying, do you take Christmas seriously? Come on. And the fake tree people are saying, are, you're taking Christmas too seriously. Come on. Which tree offers the true Christmas experience? Now that debate is a bit like what happens with the Gospels and Christmas. Every year, in church at least, we read from Luke chapter 2, Luke's Gospel chapter 2, which famously tells about Jesus' birth. In fact, next week, our fifth and sixth grade uh, girls class is going to be reciting that chapter in our service. But just like people debate the authenticity of Christmas trees, scholars and skeptics have been debating the authenticity of the gospel accounts uh, of Jesus' life for years. The question is, is the story real or is the story fake? Which I got to tell you is a question that begs an answer. And I'm willing to wager that most people in this room have some knowledge of the Christmas story. Uh, but have you ever stopped and asked yourself, is it true? Right? Is, is, it just, is it true or is it just a nice legend? Because there's at least two different types of people in this room today. Number one, you might be in a camp that's the skeptics. And if you're a skeptical person, you're leaning heavily into questions, right? You question everything. That's your motto. Uh, you may be here today and you're asking questions about Jesus, but you don't believe yet that he's God. Well, we're glad you're listening. We're glad you're here. This series, in many ways, is for you. The second group of people are the people who already believe. Let's just call you the saints, right? You're the people who uh, focus primarily on faith. You just have to believe. I suspect many of us are in that group. You're the people who read Luke 2 every year, but I got to ask you, 
If somebody in that first group came up to you and asked you to explain the authenticity of the gospel account that contains Luke 2, apart from religious faith, could you provide an answer? You believe, but do you know why you believe? And if we're honest, we may feel more equipped to debate Christmas trees than the gospel accounts. Right, Luke 2 is a great story. We got a bright star, we got angels singing in the sky, we got a birth in a manger, but is it real? Can we trust the gospel account? And this Christmas, no matter which group you're in, you owe yourself an answer to that question. In fact, it is a question that Luke, the gospel writer himself, seeks to answer. And so to know if that Christmas story is real and true, if it's believable, we need to go back before Luke 2. We have to go back to the beginning of the gospel and look at at Luke chapter 1. How does he start? He starts like this. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too... Luke says, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So even before he gets to the Christmas story, what does Luke say? He says, the reason I'm writing this whole gospel account is so that you may know it is true. And if you know, he says, I want you to trust it. That's his motivation. Now, we don't know who Theophilus was for certain, but it seems clear he was someone who needed to know that the stories were true. He needed to know that the Christmas story was real. And I wonder if there's some folks like Theophilus in the audience today. Whether you're a skeptic or whether you're a saint, don't you want to increase your certainty about the truth of the Christmas story uh, in the gospel accounts? Is there evidence beyond mere faith? Well, I think there is. And what I'd like to do this morning is outline some reasons for you as to why it is true. I want us to debate this topic with more vigor than the real and fake Christmas tree debate because it's so much more important. This Christmas, if you're going to read Luke chapter 2, you owe yourself an answer to the question, can you take the Gospels seriously? And so Luke chapter 1 One to four outlines how to explore and answer that question. First, you have to look at the account. Second, we have to do the investigation. We got to look more into it. And then finally, after you do that work, you can assess the certainty. And notice I put a question mark on the last one because you have to assess for yourself. Is it certain? So let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for my friends who are in the audience, who are listening who may be listening later on to this, Lord, I pray that you would just use it for your glory. I pray that you would soften our hearts and that we would uh, leave our, our service today with, uh, with more confidence and conviction in who you are and what you've done. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. All right. So as we ex- begin our exploration, I want to give you an image to hold on to throughout this message. It's the image of a jump. Now, more specifically, I'm thinking of the way my oldest daughter loves jumping into my arms. In fact, many fathers listening to this, you've you've experienced this. My daughter is six, and one of her favorite things to do, she's at that age, is literally to run into another room and, like, get in a runner's stance 
and then bolt as fast as she can and fl- fling herself into my arms as I'm sitting on the chair. In fact, in fact, I just, I just created a short video to show you what this looks like. Check this out. Okay, so she, she would do this literally every day, all day, again, unless she gets, she'll stop. She goes, again, 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 again. And finally I say, listen, daddy's old. He needs a break. <laughs> now, if you're a dad with a little girl, you know what, what great joy this can bring to both of you. Now, what I've noticed is that what needs to happen for this jump to occur, right? There's a couple things. Number one, uh, you know, there needs to be energy that propels her forward, uh, secondly, there has to be this in kind of invisible line that you have to jump over. And then third, uh, she needs to trust that I'm going to catch her. She's not going to run with that energy if she's not trusting that I'm going to be there with open arms. What I've learned is that kids at this age, they need to jump, right? They want to jump. They crave the jump, and my daughter trusts me and believes that I will love her and catch her. But as we get older we become less trusting. What made you less trusting? Because as you explore the evidence for the gospel accounts today, I want you to hold on to this image right here. Believing the gospels are true means we are crossing a line of faith, but the evidence to get us there, I gotta tell you, I think is much less than we initially think. What would it take to get you to jump over that line of belief if you're questioning today? So let's start our examination with Luke's gospel account. Here's how he begins again. Verse 1 and 2 says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now, what's interesting about Luke's gospel is that he's a Gentile, non-Jewish, writing about a Jewish messiah. And when he says, I've undertaken to draw up an account, he's just simply saying that I've, I've tried to write down what I've heard and what happened. Remember, there was not many literate people in the ancient world. This message was passed down verbally. And so this, this creating of this account just means he's establishing a written historical work about the, like, the life of Jesus. Now, the question around that is, you know, how do we get the account? How did this get, happen? And that's one of the major objection points that people will raise about the Christian faith in our modern culture, just simply the Bible, right? And maybe you're here today and you're saying, yes, yes, that's what I don't trust. I have some issues with the Bible, right? The more I read it, the more confusing it is. Plus, it was written so long ago in a culture that doesn't have anything to do with today. Why should that be the guiding document for our lives? I like this idea about Jesus, you know, the baby Jesus in the manger, but uh, not the Bible. Not the Bible. Well, if that's your objection, uh, this message is for you. But rather than dealing with questions about the entire Bible, I'm only going to deal with the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because they tell about the life of Jesus. They contain the Christmas story. Now, let me tell you a little bit about my background. I, I had the privilege to attend Denver Seminary in Colorado, which, by the way, if you've ever been to Colorado, I loved Christmas in Colorado because there's nothing like snow on the mountains. Amen. Uh, while I was at seminary, I studied under Dr. Craig Blomberg, who happens to be one of the foremost scholars on this topic. He wrote one of the definitive works on the reliability of the Gospels, just simply titled The Historical Reliability of the Gospels. And much of what I'm going to say today is indebted to his work and his lectures. So here's how he summarizes gospel reliability. He says this. He says, if the canonical gospels, 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, remain our only source for more than just a bare-bones outline of the life and work of Jesus of Nazareth as a truly human figure, and if there are good reasons on sheer historical grounds apart from any religious faith to accept the main contours of their portraits of Jesus as historically trustworthy, then the step of faith, the leap, right, the jump, involved in acknowledging Jesus as Lord and Savior and committing one's life and service and allegiance to him becomes the most reasonable response a person can make to his ministry. So what's he saying? Right, he's talking about the jump. Right, what would it take for you to catapult over that line? And notice what he says. He says, you gotta believe in Jesus and the reliability of the accounts of his life. It doesn't require mere faith. There are good historical reasons to believe the account. So let, let me just talk about a few. And the first one I want to mention is uh, manuscript transmission. Now, fair warning, uh, there's going to be a little bit of technicality to this message because there just has to be. Um, when we're assessing ancient documents like the Gospels, we must look at manuscript evidence, which is an area of study called textual criticism, which is a complex and research-heavy field and I got great respect for people that went into it. It just wasn't me. Some of you are saying, I never thought I'd hear a Christmas sermon on textual criticism. And God tell you, I never thought I'd be giving one, but here it is. Fair warning, again, a lot of information, but just try to stick with me because it is so important to developing confidence that Christmas is real. So here's the objection raised about the New Testament manuscripts. We don't have the originals. The original manuscript that was penned by the gospel authors has as of yet not been found. Instead, what we have are copies of copies of copies of copies that have been passed down over the years, and then the Bible that we hold in our hand today is a translation of those copies. So, how can we trust the gospels? That's the skeptical question, and it is a fair question. So let me offer you a few reasons why we can trust that what we have in our hands is reliable. First, these are ancient documents, and we cannot put 21st century standards of copying on them. Because you may think, well, in 21st century America, uh, there's this thing called Google, right? And Google is adding exponentially more information in their data centers year over year over year. Records are being recorded. Now, I hope you know that not everything you read on the internet is real. Um, it may be, it may not be. You have to test it. The point is that there is a digital record that can be examined. They didn't have that in the first century. Instead, what they had were scribes that spent their whole life training and copying these documents. The original manuscripts of the New Testament were written down in Greek in all capital letters with no spaces or punctuation. Now imagine trying to read this, right? Scholars, like later scholars, studied these manuscripts. They, 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 they looked into it. They learned the, the culture. And they progressively added all those nice periods and quotation marks you have in your modern Bible. But let's compare how the New Testament manuscripts stack up against other ancient documents that you've probably read in school. Let's say like the Iliad, right? Uh, you know, was that ninth grade around here in New Jersey? As you can see on this chart right here, the New Testament has over 5,500 manuscripts, while the Iliad only has 18. And the reason that that is important is because the more manuscripts, more ancient manuscripts you have closer to the time of writing, the more you can compare them for agreement. There's more ability to test their veracity. And when you do that, what do you find? 
Most of the manuscripts, the New Testament manuscripts, are in agreement except for mostly minor textual variants. Now, what's a variance? I'm not talking about a viral variance. I'm talking about a textual variance, which is a change in the text where not all the manuscripts agree. Now, some variants are minor, others are major. For example, a minor variant is something like a slight grammatical change or a misspelling that can be explained um, by the slip of a pen. A major variant would include something like a larger section of Scripture that's disputed. For example, the end of Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter uh, 16, verses 9 to 20, you may know, is very disputed. And that's the part, if you haven't read it, where it says that Jesus' disciples... We're going to be able to drink poison, and we're going to be able to handle snakes. And so people, uh, you know, most scholar, a lot of scholars who think that story should not be in the Bible. In fact, there's a footnote, if you read your Bible, that says that, because it's not in the oldest, oldest, oldest manuscripts. It may have been added later on. Now, here's the bottom line. <clears throat> Despite having some variance in the text, none of those discrepancies change anything about the core doctrines of the Christian faith. In fact, by ancient standards, there's amazing agreement amongst all of them. Now, the other point about transmission that should be said is this. The scribes in the ancient world were educated through rote memorization, which uh, by today's standards sounds like a really bland way of educating people. But let me offer offer an illustration to show you the difference. A number of years ago, um, while I was in Colorado, I, I happened to go visit a friend who lived about two hours from my house. And on the drive back from my visit, I realized to my great horror, literally horror, I had accidentally left my cell phone at their house. And I said, what am I going to do now? Maybe it brings horror to you in this room as well. I knew I needed to get my phone back, because, and because my phone was so smart, I had only memorized literally one phone number in all of my address book. And so I called that one number who happened to help me, and through a series of connections, I got my phone back. But my point is this. If you pulled out your phone right now, and seriously, you can take it out, it's fine, uh, how many phone numbers do you have memorized in your address book? I can tell you, I only know my phone number, and I know my wife's phone number. That's it. Now, back in the day, I knew more phone numbers, but now I don't. So let's just say you have 300 contacts in your address book. And maybe that's a, a, you know, a small for some of you. Um, the scribes of the ancient world would have all of those names, addresses, numbers, memorized and be able to recall it instantly. They were that good. And so by extension of that memory, they were able to write down accurate copies of these manuscripts. So that's how the manuscripts were transmitted, but that doesn't prove that what they said was true. So to assess that, we need to take another step and look at who wrote the manuscripts and when they were written, or authorship and dating. So let's look at the authors. There's, uh, there's Math- Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. So Mark's gospel uh, is generally agreed to be the earliest gospel that was written down. And we think that the source material for that came from the Apostle Peter, you know, the guy who denied Jesus three times and all that. Mark is thought to be the same person who abandoned Paul and Barnabas on one of their missionary journeys, which caused a major conflict. It was like all the rage in the church at the time. And because of this incident, people will argue that he was an unlikely candidate to have a gospel named after him if he didn't actually write it. Like, why would you name a gospel after the guy who abandoned everybody on the field? 
There would have been other prominent followers of Jesus who could have been chosen. And so because of that fact, I think that's one reason we can assume that he is the, indeed the author. And Luke is the same. Luke, Luke was Paul's doctor. He was a Gentile physician who didn't actually spend time with Jesus. And you wouldn't expect such a person to write down an account unless, unless he actually did. Now, Matthew and John were disciples of Jesus, and John was one of the inner circle, which may be why his gospel was so different than the other three. So those are the four canonical gospels. Now, there were other writings called gospels that appeared later on. Those are the Gnostic gospels, and I'll come back to them in just a moment. Uh, But for now, I simply want to highlight why these four gospels made it into the canon of Scripture. First, all of the authors were either apostles or they walked with Jesus, or they received their material from somebody who did. Uh, Second, all of these Gospels were written relatively short after Jesus' death. So Jesus died roughly around 30 AD, give or take, depending on how you uh, date his birth. Um, Conservative scholars place the following dates on the writing of the four Gospels. The, The conservative ones are in the yellow. Mark is the earliest one, likely about 50s or early 60s. Matthew and Luke were somewhere in the 60s also. John, of course, was written uh, later on, maybe the 80s, 90s. More liberal scholars, that's the far right column there, uh, place the dates a bit later. You know, Mark in the 60s and 70s, Matthew or Luke around 80, John around 90. But I want you to notice something. In, In either dating, conservative or liberal, all of these accounts were written down by the end of the first century. Now, to us modern listeners, 30, 40, 50 years, that seems like a really long time. But again, remember, we live in a world where information travels at the speed of light. If there's something happening across the world right now, a protest in China, uh, attacks in Ukraine, terrorist attacks in Africa, riots in the U.S., we all almost know immediately what's happening because of the news or social media or whatever, And and then if there's information you want to communicate out to the world, you could write a blog, you could change a post on Wikipedia, you could tweet, if you can still do that. That's not how it worked in the first century. Information traveled very slowly by comparison. And so what I want to communicate is that 30 to 50 years after the time of Jesus' death was a very short amount of time. And here's the difference. The first century world was an oral culture. Most people could not read or could not read anyway. So if you wrote it down, it didn't matter. That was, that was for the real privileged in society. The stories about Jesus were told, they were memorized, they were passed down with great accuracy, and eventually, within short order, the accounts were written down and preserved for us to read thousands of years later. Now, let me mention one last objection before we move on. Uh, Dr. Bart Ehrman He's a Bible scholar who teaches at UNC Chapel Hill. I think they mentioned him last week. Uh, He's quoted often in these discussions because he used to be a Christian, uh, but now he's not. And one of the reasons he's not is that he says we can't trust the Bible. And he uses the illustration very famously of the telephone game to describe how the stories about Jesus were passed down and why we can't believe them. Now, have you ever played the telephone game? Yeah, okay. So if if you have, can you tell me why it's such a fun game to play? Right, on one end, you whisper in somebody's ear and you, you pass a message along, and then it goes along for however many people, and then by the time you get to the other end, what happens? It's, it's completely different, right? And that's what he's saying, is that you know, the message was passed down from person to person, and it changed over time. And, and if you're, again, if you're somebody who's skeptical, you might be saying, well, that's what I'm talking about. 
Well, if I may, let me just let me just make an argument as to why the telephone game is the the very wrong analogy to use when it comes to transmission of the gospels. And here's why. The telephone game passes that message in secret. You're whispering in somebody's ear so nobody else can hear. Um, But that's not the way that it happened with the Gospels and the sayings of Jesus. They were passed on with multiple people around. What What does Luke himself say? He says, many, right? It was fulfilled amongst us. They were handed down to us. You know, those who were eyewitness servants. A lot of plurals in that verse right there, right? Many have undertaken. This message was handed down, and it came from multiple people. In fact, there's a whole discipline of study out there now. You can look it up. That has arisen around what's been called social memory. In other words, groups of people develop a memory of what happened in the past together. So imagine if you're playing that telephone game, and everybody could hear what each person was saying. And then as a group, what you would do is you would decide if the message was accurate before you passed it along. You could correct the error of the message before it went to the next person. That's how the Gospels were transmitted, and it's a major reason why we can trust their accuracy. So I think we can trust that the original story of Christmas is the same message that was passed down. And again, I want you to think about that image of the jump, okay? Does the evidence I just presented move you any closer to that invisible line to make the jump? Well, <laughs> excuse me, you might, you might still say that just because we can prove the original message is the same does not mean the original message was true. We're still saying, we're making that argument. Well, for that, and it's fair, for that we have to look at the second point. We have to continue to do more investigation. We need to investigate the accounts further. So what did the Gospels actually claim about Jesus? And is that true? Well, in the last 20 to 25 years, there's a group called the New Atheists, you may have heard of them, who have arisen to challenge the truth claims of Christianity. People like Richard Dawkins, most famously uh, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, and the late Christopher Hitchens all have challenged the veracity of the Bible and the Christian worldview. And yet some of them still manage to have respect for Jesus. Really interestingly, in an interview with the Beast, Daniel Dennett Uh, made a rather provocative statement. He said this. He said, I think that actually Jesus makes a very fine hero. In fact, we had some discussions of forming a group called the Atheists for Jesus. Now just wrap your mind around that statement for a second. Is it possible to be an atheist for Jesus? Well... um, If you think that Jesus was a good moral teacher and he lived a good life and did some good in the world and he challenged the establishment of the day, which led to his death, I could see why you would would think he was a hero, but is Jesus really like Spider-Man? But let me ask you a question. Is this you? And that may sound really odd to contemplate, but what I want you to think about, and what I often see is that there's people who are They're functional atheists, even if they're attending church and calling themselves Christian, because your main motivation for being here is you think Jesus was a good moral teacher, the story is inspirational, not that he was the God of the universe. And that's very different, because maybe you come to church at Christmas time and you feel inspired by the story, you like the tune, you want to hear John sing, Oh, Holy Night, one of these weeks. 
But when you leave church, you can live your life like God doesn't exist. An atheist for Jesus. You wouldn't give yourself that label, but how do you practically live? Now, we've spoken about why the gospel records are accurate, but when we investigate if they're true, and, and if we do investigate if they're true and find that's real, then we have to take the words of Jesus seriously. And if you take the words of Jesus seriously, I don't think you can come to the same conclusion as Daniel Dennett right here in this interview. Because what is the, what is the second point that Luke makes? Verse 3, he says, With this in mind... Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, notice the word investigated. In other words, Luke, who was a physician, a scientist of his day, looked into the accuracies of these accounts and wrote them down because he thought they were true. What was his intent in writing down this orderly account? And that's another objection that people raise about the Gospels, they say, well, were the Gospels written for the purpose of recording history or communicating theology? Well, the truth is it was likely a bit of both. Uh, Luke heard these stories from his source material, and he investigated what happened. And as a man of science, he could, he could read and write, and he decided what was important, and he put it down in his historical account. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't, again, much to your surprise, maybe. They didn't have computers. They didn't have endless amounts of data drives. They had a limited amount of papyrus paper, right? That was like a scroll that you would roll up. And if you ever wrote something down in the ancient world, if you wrote it down, it was really important because you only had so much space. And, and you had to be very careful how you said things as well as how much you said. What the, what's in the Gospels is very specific, the Gospels are writing down history with the purpose of communicating a message they believed. So today there's a lot of discussion about bias in the news media. And I always talk to people who are trying to find an unbiased, objective opinion. And the more I think about it, I don't really think that's possible. I think there's, there's not unbiased sources of information. There's news sources that are honest about their bias, and there's those that are not. Now, that doesn't mean that everything people say in the news is wrong. It just means you have to be aware of what people are communicating and why they're communicating it. You have to be discerning. The Gospels were written down as history for the purpose of communicating who Jesus was. How does John end his Gospel? He says this. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, because I only had so much paper. But they are... These are written, why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What does he say? I could record every single detail of Jesus' life, but I only have so much space. I wrote down the most important things because I want you to believe. Did these things happen? Is there evidence? I think there is. And again, I only have so much time because you don't want to be here all afternoon. But we have testimonies from non-Christian writers that there was a Jesus of Nazareth. To name a few, Dave mentioned some of them last week. The Jewish historian Josephus, the Greek writer Lucian, the Roman writers Suetonius, Tacitus, and Pliny all testify. There was a first century Jewish man born out of wedlock who upended the Roman Empire in Israel. There's archaeological evidence corroborating people and places from the biblical accounts. There are many reasons to believe that what we read in the Gospels actually happened. But then some people will still argue that the Gospels, that they were made up later on. 
that, hundreds of years later. But I want to give you one piece of compelling evidence I think that contradicts that objection, and that is just simply the Jewish context. So Jesus, if you didn't know, he was a Jewish rabbi, and many of the Gospels were written to a Jewish audience. They wanted the Jews to believe that he was the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Now, some people will, again, argue that they, these stories were made up later on with the intent of pushing a narrative. For example, I, I remember picking up a book in my youth entitled The Lost Books of the Bible. Maybe you've read this or looked at this. Now, what I didn't know at the time was that these lost books were the Gnostic Gospels that I mentioned earlier. And if you don't know what Gnosticism is, Dr. Blomberg defines it this way. He says, Gnosticism was a collection of loosely related religious movements that combines significant elements of Greek philosophy and ritual with Christian characters and themes to create this hybrid syncretistic mythology. So in Gnosticism, what you find is that the material world is evil, only your spirit can be redeemed, and salvation comes from esoteric knowledge. And if you read the Gnostic Gospels, you'll see these elements play out, things like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas. Some of those were source material for Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, by the way. They were all written centuries, centuries after Jesus' death and contained modification to early Christian teaching. Let me give you one example of a modification. In the early church, there was a major debate around the issue of circumcision. Now remember, all Jewish men had to have this surgery because it was the sign of the covenant between them and Yahweh God. But after Jesus came, the Jewish and the Gentile sections of the church, they fought about this. Like this was the, think about the major debates in the church today. This was the major debate of the church in the first century. There was a whole council that was called in Acts chapter 15 to debate this issue. Can you imagine? The Jews were telling the Gentiles, if you want to be saved, you've got to be circumcised. And if you were a Gentile man in the first century, when there was no anesthesia, and uh, you were an adult, and they said, you've got to have this surgery to be saved, you might be a bit reticent to do that as well. Now, did Jesus say anything about this in the biblical Gospels? No. It's what's called a missing topic. And why is that important? Because if somebody was writing these Gospels later on to push an agenda, wouldn't you expect them to add something about this controversial topic? Yes. And that's exactly what you find in the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, where we see a scene where Jesus is explaining that circumcision is not really beneficial. The biblical Gospels say nothing about the topic, which should lead us to believe that they were trying to record the most important details of Jesus' life and words, not to push an agenda. And for that reason, I think we can trust that those were the words uh, in the, the, the words in the biblical gospels were the words of Jesus. Now, before we leave this point, let me come back to Daniel Dennett's comment for a minute. Can you be an atheist for Jesus? Well, author Neil Shenvey wrote a book entitled Why I Believe. Great book. And he deals with the authenticity of the gospels in one of his chapters. And he says that when you're confronted with the statements Jesus made about himself, what you find is a shocking juxtaposition of intense moral beauty and hair-raising divine authority. So the first point, I think, is why an atheist might be drawn to Jesus, but it doesn't square with the second point, because then you'd have to believe that Jesus was an evil megalomaniac. But as Shenvi points out, if he was an evil megalomaniac, it doesn't really square with his impact on history. 
So here's what he says. He says, Jesus managed to transform the course of human history as a wandering rabbi who led no armies, conquered no kingdoms, didn't have the least inclination of political power, and was executed in his 30s. Sounds like the dream of every young adult today, right? (laughs) Said nobody. The extra-biblical sources attest to this, that this happened. Shenby continues. He says, what we're left with is a man who traveled around a fiercely monotheistic world, culture, claiming to be God. He taught and lived a life of moral beauty. And third, he transformed the entire course of human history for two millennia without recourse to to political or military power. So he says if Jesus were a run-of-the-mill evil megalomaniac, then those last two facts would be absolutely extraordinary. But if Jesus was indeed God, then all three facts are unsurprising. In fact, that's exactly what we'd expect if God actually came to earth. So once you examine the accounts, once you investigate Jesus' life, I think there's a good chance that you're going to come to the same conclusion as Neil Shenby right here. This evidence will propel you to that invisible line, but then you have to decide if you're going to make the jump. Which brings us to that final point. That's the certainty, right? Question mark. Are you certain that the Gospels are accurate? Or are you certain that they're inaccurate? Well, I'll be honest, I don't think we know everything, right? Some things are uncertain, but I think there's enough evidence that it's reasonable to conclude that Jesus is who he said he is. And I don't think it really takes that much to get there. Again, how does Luke conclude the opening of his gospel? What does he say? What's his reason for writing? He says, I write so that you may know the certainty of the things you were taught, so that you may know the stories are true. And again, Luke, the scientist, goes to great lengths to make sure the details he includes are vetted, that they're purposeful, that they're accurate. Why? So we can have confidence that Jesus is who he said he is. And perhaps you still think that, you know, 30 to 40 years, it's too long to be certain about what he said. Well, there's one more piece of evidence that I I didn't mention at the beginning that points to an even earlier reality of the message being passed down. And that's the earliest Christian writers. They attested to the message of the gospel. So first there was the apostle Paul, who wrote very close to Jesus' death and often alludes to Jesus' sayings. And then secondly, there was James, the brother of Jesus, one of his disciples, who quoted Jesus two dozen times in his letter very early. And some people will date that letter very early after Jesus' death, like the early 40s, within 10 years of Jesus dying. But the most compelling evidence I find is in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, where if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 5, you're going to find this creed. Paul writes this, he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Paul, and then to the twelve. And most scholars agree that this was a creed, a fixed oral tradition. What do you read? You read Paul is receiving this message. He heard it. And then immediately he passes it on to the other Christians. It was the first thing that he taught them. What was the message? Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose on the third day. And then he appeared to who? To how many? To many 
witnesses. In other words, if you wanted to corroborate that this happened right then and there, just go and ask the guy down the road because he was there. And here's the craziest part. You may remember that Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus and most scholars agree that if Jesus died roughly around 30, 33 AD and Paul started persecuting Christians right away, this was recorded. This message that he heard happened within two to three years of Jesus' death. Now, do you see where I'm taking you, right? Where did Paul learn this creed? Maybe even from Ananias after the Damascus Road, which means that this message was being passed on within two years of Jesus' death. Not 30, not 40, two years. In fact, it's likely the earliest disciples were sharing this within months of Jesus' death. Now, I can remember back two months. Paul didn't have Twitter. But this was the first century version of a message going viral. It was contagious. It spread. And if you're somebody who thinks that these stories were made up over time, I just don't think that the evidence points to that. So let me offer two points of application for both skeptics and saints before we finish. First, as you leave today, just start having conversations. Christmas is a great time to talk about Christmas. If you're somebody who's skeptical, find a Christian who who you can talk about with your questions. If you're a saint, seek out those who are skeptical, even if they're in your own family. Talk to them, even even if it's challenging. Just, Just have a conversation. Second, examine the evidence. For starters, just read the Bible. Right? I am amazed at how many people out there think they're Bible experts and have opinions on the Bible who haven't read the Bible. I've only given you a taste of today, today of what's out there. There's so many books and videos and podcasts. Just, you can spend a whole month, right? Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin's book we mentioned. It's $3.99. Pick it up. Uh, if you want a deeper dive, you can go with Craig Blomberg's books or Neil Shenvey's Why I Believe is really accessible. If you want to look at textual criticism, uh, Neil Lightfoot's got a book called How We Got the Bible, which is also really, really great and, and accessible. And as you search... As you investigate further into Jesus' life, what I think you're going to find is a wide attestation of impact. And I think you can easily come to the conclusion with pretty good certainty that what the gospels say about Jesus is real and true. The question is, will you believe? Because you've heard the account, we've investigated the claims and the evidence, now will you take the jump? And that's where I want to end today. Because if you're somebody who's in the skeptical camp and you have heard all the evidence and yet you're dragging your feet for whatever reason, you don't want to jump, my heart, my heart breaks for you because you're missing out on so much joy. You see, when my daughter jumps into my arms, when she takes her jump, it's an incredible feeling. Love and joy and connection, father to child, but there's also joy in her heart because her father is catching her. She, in fact, she wants to keep doing it over and over and over again, jumping into her father's arms. Friends, that is what God wants for you. He wants you to experience the joy of jumping into his arms and feeling his love wrap around you. I recognize that this was a pretty technical message, but at the end of the day, this jump is what it's all about. It's the reason that God sent his son to earth as a baby. 
It's the reason that when Jesus grew up, he chose to go to a cross and die for your sins. It's the reason that God chose to allow the scriptures to be preserved with such compelling accuracy. He did it all so that you could experience the joy of the jump. And when you say, finally, I believe, I'm gonna, I, Jesus, I surrender, I give my life to you, he is waiting with open arms. He loves you and he wants to welcome you into his family. And if you're somebody who's in the saint camp today, if you're a believer, may your heart break for those who have not experienced this joy yet. And so as the worship team comes on stage for one last song, I just want to end where I started. Before Christmas, before Luke 2, there was Luke 1. And what does the author claim? He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to those of us from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, with this in mind, since I myself, Luke says, have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. He wrote down an account. He told the story. He investigated the claims. Why? so that you may know with certainty. And this Christmas, you owe yourself an answer to that question. Can you take the gospel seriously? And if you don't think we can, are you certain? Because the truth is we can't prove everything. Yes, you have to have faith. But if you look at the totality of evidence for the gospel, the jump to get across that line and into your father's arms, it's really not that far. Take the jump. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your, your grace and your love. Lord, thank you for your word that has been preserved for us over thousands of years. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd speak to us today, that you would tug on people's hearts, Lord. Pull us closer to that line. Help us, help us to share our faith so that others may come closer to that line and then experience that joy of the jump that gets us into your arms. Thank you for sending your son to earth as a baby who would grow up, who would go to the cross, who would die the death that we should have died, who would rise again from the dead so that we could have life, who would ascend into heaven and who one day will come back at the second advent and all things will be made new. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name.